Empire podcast this week, 180! Yes, this is the 180th Empire podcast, not counting spoiler specials, interview specials, and live specials, of course. So let's play podcast! On the Oki this week, we have David the Oyster Oyelowo here to talk about his new film, Captive, plus as usual, I'm, I'm carrying on with this, plus as usual movie news and nonsense, and the only podcast that is deadly from eight feet deadly. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the original Empire Podcast. There's another Empire Podcast. Have you seen this? No. Uh, so there's a TV show, uh, Empire in the States. Oh yes, I'm aware very, of very it. Very, very popular television show. And indeed show. here. And indeed here. And uh, last week, uh, someone uh, you uh, someone snapped up the Twitter handle. We should have snapped it up, in fairness. Uh, hindsight 2020. Uh, Empire Podcast. And they have dedicated a, a, a podcast to Empire the Show. So if you have come here thinking that this is the other Empire Podcast, and we're going to talk about <laughs> right. Terrence Sorry. Howard. I'm off. <laughs> we're not. Bye, Phil. Um, but there you go. So this is the this is there, there you go. We have we have competition, and we must stamp them out. We've got the, one of the greatest legal minds of our time in this room at the moment. We, we do. could probably shut them down if we need to. That's no way to describe Chris. <laughs> we do. We do. Anyway, this week I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning, and I'm going to continue the darts theme. First up, the reigning, supernatural watching, dragon loving, geek queen, champion of the world. It's Helen. The Hawkeye O'Hara <laughs> Okay, I'd prefer Black Widow, but I'll take it. It doesn't, it doesn't I, I know, I know. It's, it's a darts thing which I don't really understand. That's there's fine. got to be some sort of alliteration, Helen. There are, don't you know nothing about darts? I that's don't know negative. nothing about darts. That's, right. <laughs> that's a double um, negative. I, there are only two real sports, Chris, as we all know, and those are of course darts. tennis and roller derby. So N- naked darts. Yeah, yes, I agree <laughs> with those. I agree with two of those. They are definitely two sports. Next up, please welcome our art house guru. It's Phil, the Abbas Kiriostami completist, Decemblian! <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> I thought you said there had to be alliteration. Can I, I, be don't, I like, don't make the rules, Helen. Can I be like Nicholas Ray Bonneveld? <laughs> <laughs> that would be better. I quite like your original. We've deviated. Chris has many, if, this is behind the curtain a bit, but Chris has many, he works for a day and a half on each intro. <laughs> So he'll start working. He started working on next week's intros yesterday. Alternatively, I write them in fifteen minutes on the train on the way to work. But they often change. <laughs> so we hear the first version and then mm. we prepare for it. I'll, I'll use next week's. Oh, so that, I shouldn't say what it's about. First. Don't 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 spoil okay. it. Don't give people two intros for the price of oh, one. Okay. Okay. So there we go. Welcome Helen. Welcome Phil. Uh, before we begin, a correction mm-hmm. and an apology. This is serious stuff, folks. Oh. Uh, on last week's pod, we were discussing movie songs, and I said. That four weddings and a funeral predates Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. What? And I even said at the time, somewhat hubristically, I'm good at movie dates. And I am, generally speaking, good at movie dates. So I know the 2001 Space Odyssey came out in 2001. Stuff like that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> right. But I now accept, and thank you to the countless people, three, who uh, pointed out on my Twitter feed yeah. uh, that I was wrong. Yeah. Uh, that I was wrong. And that Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves came out in 1991. And uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral did not come out in 1988, as I thought. What? It came out in 1994. Of course it did. Of course. It could not be more 90s. What are you... Well, I just got confused. And in fairness, it's not like we can easily Google this while we're on the pod. (laughs) Uh, So there you go. Uh, My apologies to all involved with Four Weddings and indeed my apologies to 1994. Should we move on? Sure. Let's move on with a question from at Fee511 via Twitter. 
Okay, I think uh, this is an actual droid sending in questions now. Uh, so this uh, this this person sent in a question a couple of weeks ago when London was uh, pouring with rain. This is the, the one-off, <laughs> as, you, <laughs> as you might imagine. The question is: As I look out at a dripping wet London, I ask the pod booth, "What is the best action scene set in rain?" You went a bit Richard Burton there. As I look out at a dripping wet London. There you go. So, what's the best action scene set in rain? Uh, this was actually quite a hard one. I, w- I had like a feeling that there were many, but I had a hard time pinning it down. But the one mm. I'm going to go for is Zatoichi. <laughs> well, um, because you just want to impress me. Yes, I am. Because uh, I watch many foreign films, Phil, and you just get all the grief for it. <laughs> many, um, many, many wonderful, m- foreign wonderful films. foreign films. <laughs> uh, but no, it's a very, it's a very, very good one. Like it's, uh, it's a great Japanese film, and it's, uh, it's got that great rain scene. Because I think if you don't have like a long like I guess a katana maybe a slightly different form of Japanese sword I apologise to any sword completists if I'm wrong but the rain just dripping off the edge of the sword it just looks really cool and I think the, those um, samurai outfits lend themselves to rain as well they mm-hmm. look awesome and of course there's um, Seven Samurai as well the end of that takes there place there you go also in the rain yeah. in the rain and the mud mm. kicking in the gouging in the mud and the blood and the beer <laughs> alright that's, the, that's the probably the, the greatest example of the rain because it's not just a stylistic device is it they're actually mm. one mm. of them doesn't seem to have trousers on <laughs> but they they're fighting on behalf of the village against great odds but they're mm. sort of everybody's sort of slipping around in the mud and it's just kind of just gnarly and brutal and brilliantly shot uh, Into the Mud Scum Queen is a famous line of course from Seven Samurai I think that's, <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure that's, that's one of the lines. Maybe I just watched a different translation. <laughs> How good would it be if it were? <laughs> um, that's just reminded me, wasn't, wasn't there a rain scene somewhere in Saving Private Ryan? Yes. Is that the one where mm-hmm. Vin Diesel buys it? Vin Diesel buys Yes, Vin Spoiler. Diesel buys it. Spoiler. Neuville. They arrive in Neuville. That's my favourite scene because it's got... It's they turn scene. up and they're like... The, they've come from the beach, obviously, and the, the paras... The, yep. the hard and the screaming eagles, I think it is the 101 airborne, are there ahead of them. And and who, but who could be the most classic example of the hard and grizzled para that would have gone in early, first in, <laughs> than Paul Giamatti, the first oh. guy that went into. Oh, I'm really glad to see you guys. <laughs> he says, cradling him, uh, not Malo. In his, uh, in his canteen, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then Ted Danson's Ted Danson's there as well. It's like yeah. a it's like yeah. a sort of get together of some of the coolest and least likely character actors in the business. And, mm. and of course Nathan Fillion. Nathan Fillion and Nathan Fillion as well. Yes, because yeah. he's the wrong Ryan, isn't he's he? The wrong Ryan. Yes, and so it's a brilliantly choreographed scene with the sniper in that yeah. in the rain. And again, it's got that kind of like the proper the rain enhances the mood it's not just a stylist stylistic thing that's amazing I have a fact okay. did you know Brian Cranston is in Saving Private Ryan he plays one of the tanks doesn't he no I think, he plays, he plays the Winnebago that they drive into <laughs> no. do you know what? I think I did see him in it last time I watched it but like fleetingly is that right yeah. Ah. Yeah. Well, Dennis Farina, you you remember? Because uh-huh. he's the guy on the beach, at the top of the beach. Yeah. He seems to have got there ahead of everyone else, and he's just too hard. The Figures. Germans can't kill him. But um, the, yeah, I don't even remember where Cranston features. That's a great fact, Phil. <laughs> it's not a bad fact. Is I guess he was acting before. There's a man in the film, but I don't know where he is. <laughs> well, I just found it just out on the song. way into the podcast. <laughs> okay. I haven't had time. All oh, right. Okay. I haven't okay. had time to rewatch thought, the film. I thought you rewatched it or something. But I will you rewatch had spotted, the film. You had spotted Cranston. Uh, what about the Grandmaster and Wong Kar Wai's? Rain, yeah, action, uh, martial arts sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Not a great film, particularly by his standards. But it looks really good. Yes. I mean, a- if you're talking like scenic rain, like he's 
got that one down pretty yes. much. That's chubby rain. That's chubby rain. It's <laughs> beautiful. Very beautiful. Depends on your definition of action, really, doesn't it? I mean, for example, there's a great scene set in the rain at the end of uh, the 1994 classic Four Weddings and a Funeral. <laughs> um, was it raining there? I didn't notice. <laughs> oh, I'm shaking your hand for that one. Well done, Helen. That's very good. Um, if you do nothing else, this podcast, you can retire. You can leave. You can go. That's 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 amazing. But that's that's a kind of action, isn't it? You know, yeah, with, you know, and Spider Man hanging upside down in the rain like a weirdo. You know, that's oh, so that's kind of when an you action. say action, you mean I'm getting? Thinking, some I'm thinking 1970s. Wow, chickabow kind of action. Uh, you know, wow, chickabow. Mm. God, you're lucky you're not single. Everybody was kung fu <laughs> kissing. Mm. What about the end of Basil the Great Mouse Detective? What about it? <laughs> I just thought I'd throw it in there. I'll be not, honest. not strictly germane to this conversation. I'll be honest, I have forgotten the end of Basil the Great Mouse Detective. <laughs> Please, by all means, refresh our memories. <laughs> they're, falling, they're fighting at Big Ben. Uh-huh. I remember Some that. form of uh, Alfred Hitchcock 39 steps homage, and, and, and it starts raining, and it just adds a sense of it's again, it's that real mood. It's not it's often mood. you hear it's mood weather. It's not often you hear people discussing the mood in Basil the Great Mice Detective. So well, I'm glad you did that. In a way, it's a noir. Rain in animation is 35 percent more expensive as well. Is that correct? That's that's incredible. No, but, but it sounds it sounds that's good. a good fact. It's probably yeah. quite expensive to do because I know that um, the bubbles in the Little Mermaid gave them a lot of trouble. We haven't mentioned Brian Cranston. Brian Cranston for several minutes in Basil the Great Mouse Detective. <laughs> Who was he? I don't know where though. Um, he is not in that film no. Uh, the Matrix Revolutions, I think, is one of your favourites, isn't it? <laughs> you, you use the word favourites is perhaps a bit leading. Um, <laughs> it's the one I could think of. Basically, <laughs> no, it's a good listen, rain scene. It's a very good rain scene. Rain is very difficult to shoot in uh, if you're actually acting in it as well, because you know, in order for rain to show up in movies, uh, they have it has to be a lot harder and a lot heavier than it actually is in real life. So I, I do kind of feel sorry for CG Keanu and CG Hugo Weaving in that scene. Um, I think the ending of The Matrix Revolutions is a fantastic, genuinely great comic book style fight between superhero and supervillain. And um, yeah, and the, the bullet time treatment, you know, the, the slowing down, the rain droplets, it looks rather gorgeous. I do like, I'm not, I'm not a great fan of the film, but I love that sequence. Yes. And very many Hugo Weavings in it as well, which is never a bad thing. Helm's Deep. Helm's Deep. That might be the right answer. Is the best as the best rain scene. It's a pretty great scene. That's the moment that makes the two towers really. What's the significance of the beat where the old dude unleashes an arrow prematurely? Was well, the kind of thing that happens? I think, isn't it? Like you know, it seems to have special portent to what comes next. Like it's going to make them even angrier. But they're already maximum angry because they're orcs, <laughs> aren't they? That's just their natural default setting. I, I guess it gives you an idea of the unbearable tension, the literal tension of holding yeah, mm. yeah. your bow ready to fire that whole time. Yeah, that's true. It, it's a little bit Agincourt at that point, somehow. Mm. Ah, Henry uh, speaking, of, right. speaking of rain and action, and yes, Henry V. And it did actually rain during Agincourt. Indeed. So the historical accurate too. Bonus. I'm going to throw a couple more in. Unless you got anything else you want to you want to suggest? Anything else you want to throw in? We were talking about this before, Phil, and you mentioned Jurassic Park uh, Jurassic with the T Rex, of course, which oh, is a classic, a absolute yes. classic. That is a belter, Unforgiven, of course. Mm. The final final showdown mm-hmm. deserves got nothing to do with it. That's uh, that takes place on a very rainy day, uh, and then who can forget the fight between Obi Wan Kenobi and Jango Fett in the five star masterpiece. Star Wars Episode 2 
Attack of the Clones. Five stars is a recommendation. Mm-hmm. When our good friend Obi-Wan has gone to Camino. Uh-huh. You remember this, Helen? I mean... You were there. I was. Your right. mouth was agape with wonder. <laughs> That's probably right. Uh, it's only agape with something. And yeah. you thought, how can this film possibly get any better? I can't remember you saying those words to me. Probably. I don't yeah. think I'd met you at that point. No, <laughs> no we, we hadn't but, actually met, but no, yeah, I was met. there, spiritually speaking. You were spiritually there, and you said you turned to me, future Helen, and said to me, Chris, the only way this movie could get any better is if there's a fight in the rain between Boba's dad and that beardy man. That's what I said. That sounds like me. So there you go. So it must have been. There you go. Future Helen. Is future Helen going to be in the podcast at any point? I mean, we'll have to wait and see. We'll wait and see. Okay, if you want to have your question uh, treated with the same respect that we treated uh, at Fee511s, uh, do send them in. We're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine, not mm. at Empire Podcast. No, sir. Mm. No. That's a different podcast. Mm. Shut it down. Shut it down now. No, we welcome all Empire Podcasts. Uh, use the hashtag Empire Podcasts or, or we won't see it. They'll see it and they'll read out the questions in their show. You can email us podcast at empireonline.com and you can Facebook us as well where we're Empire Magazine. Okay. Right. Yes. Movie news? Sure. So why not? What's been happening? Stuff. Great. Amazing Moving on. stuff. This week's guest. No, um, <laughs> There's a lot of Ridley Scott in Ether at the moment. Uh, is there? There is. He's everywhere. I wonder what that was. He's everywhere. Partly because he's obviously going to be out promoting his new film, The Martian. He's going to be on this podcast. Partly because Denis Villeneuve is out there promoting. He's going to be on this podcast. His new film, Sicario. Oh, spoiler! The Sicario, not the Sicario. <laughs> the, no. Sicario. the Sicario. I can't wait to see the Sicario. Uh, the he, but Denis Villeneuve is obviously talking about the Blade Runner. Why am I putting the in front I of everyone? I don't know. I'm really I don't confused. Know what's happening here. This is a very specific form of mental ailment. <laughs> I shall get that seen to by the doctor. Um, so the 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 point of this is that he he's being he's promoting um, the Martian around the world, Sir Ridders, and he's been talking about Prometheus and what he's revealed uh, to a German uh, to a German outlet. Mm-hmm. So there's some suggestion that something may have got lost in translation potentially but he's talking about doing no well you think not uh, my experience German people's English is better than our English and usually yes four Promethei films four four Promethei yes because the idea is that he was going to move the franchise from where it is now Mm -hmm. which I believe is the year 2089 to the year that Alien is set which I believe is 2122 my maths isn't very good but that's about what 30 odd years right so roughly one a decade maybe a little bit I mean, so he's talking hmm. about the, the connective tissue, the direct connective tissue between Prometheus and Alien happening in the third or fourth film. Wow. This is ambitious. And it suggests that he sees a lot of interest in developing the Prometheus story. And we're going to be ta- I'm going to be talking to him tomorrow, actually. Uh, I will ask him about this for next week's podcast. But it does seem like he's putting the Ceno cart before the Ceno horse a little bit here. <laughs> Yes, he's maybe counting the Xeno eggs before they've hatched. <laughs> um, yeah, it does. It does seem that. It does seem that way. I mean, here is a film, Prometheus, which is not universally beloved, and just about scraped enough money worldwide to make a sequel possible. Now, unless they have, I mean, I'm sure he's privy to different research information and whatnot. Maybe there are people out there who are gagging for Prometheus two, three, four, and five, and maybe the second one will be. The better one, yeah, as it is with the originals. Mm. But uh, no, I love Alien. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. Why not just make it all connect up in Prometheus Two or the first one? It's a bit late <laughs> for that. Definitely, oh. the, the Ceno horses uh, well, yeah. has bolted.
Yes, it's a breaking news klaxon, and that can mean only one thing, that news has broken overnight. So we've just been blabbing on incessantly about Prometheus 2, and then Ridley Scott dropped yesterday that the title of Prometheus 2 will actually be Alien, colon, Paradise Lost. And he says it will have Miltonian elements. Then he went on to say further, that it will go into the back door of the Alien franchise, leading to his Alien movie, mm. which slightly contradicts what he said earlier on about being five Prometheus movies and the, the connecting tissue would really be in the third and the fourth. What do we think of this, Phil? Well, I think it's a better title than Alien colon Paradise Postponed. Yes. It's got, it's got more weight. Yes. There is a, a whiff of him just making it up as he goes along at the moment. Because um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a completely different thing from what he said to the, <laughs> to the German journalist that we've discussed earlier in this very podcast. Yes. And um, I'm speaking to him uh, for next week's podcast. And he could say something completely different. And he probably will say something completely different. But I, I've got a, a fairly long sit down with him. So <laughs> I feel a lot of pressure now to, 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 to eke revelations out of him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick him up and shake him upside down. He's giving until them up. Revelation. That's, that's amazing. It was the, 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 I love that interview. It's basically mm-hmm. like he's just, it's not like a deep throat going on here at the moment. It's not like Woodward and Bernstein stuff going on. It's basically like, so Ridley, tell us about Prometheus 2. And he's volunteering bits of information. It's the best. Which means he'll probably, um, he'll probably stay stunned with me. But I'm intrigued by this and I want to know a lot of things. The introduction of the word alien into the title and not Prometheus, is that a way of backing away from a movie that I think has been seen by a lot of people, including certain people around this desk, as not entirely successful, both creatively and commercially? Enough, as we said, to get a sequel. But is there really an appetite? You know, if you put Prometheus on a film, will it drive people away? If you put Alien on a film, it'll bring people in. Also... You think so? I, I would say so. Also, what does this mean for the Neil Blomkamp's mm. Alien movie? Is this in some way connected to Neil Blomkamp's Alien movie? There has been scuttlebutt that that may not happen. I would hope that it does. Uh, coming at the franchise from two different ends, if mm. uh, so to speak. And also, one of the working titles for Prometheus was Paradise. So, Phil, you know the classics. Uh-huh. I'm sure you've immersed yourself fully in Paradise Lost. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favourite Muse songs. <laughs> What is it? No, I haven't read it. I John haven't Milton's read it in its entirety. Lost. No, I know. Yeah. I mean, I haven't read the entirety either. I know I've done, done a roughly lot of time. what it's about. It's the sort of the creation mm-hmm. and uh, the devil being cast. It's basically the plot of Legion, and yes. the yes, there are. The, but then part of the problem with Prometheus was that it had all of this creationary, big theme, big meaning stuff. I think it bogged it down a bit. And it was all a bit bombastic at times. I'm not sure that moving further into that terrain is the way forward. There is a suggestion, though, going back to the Blumkamp thing, that that Ridley's not 100% content with the idea of the Neil Blumkamp alien alien extension and that this might be a get-off-my-turf move. But that would need to be to the man himself, I suppose. Well, if only we had someone who was speaking to him. <laughs> um, so what we're going to do, I think, uh, if you listen to this podcast now, what I think we're going to do is if Ridley does drop any tidbits, alien hints, any explanations of what this means, both for his film and for the Blomkamp film, we're going to have him obviously in next week's podcast as well, but we might drop them out into a separate news story now, so there's a little bit of timeliness to them. Uh, so maybe listen out for that later on. There might be We might do something in an audio boo or... Who knows? We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. But um, I'm intrigued. I'm very intrigued indeed to see where this goes. I always find it amazing that he followed up Prometheus and the Counselor, which I think are, are, are two films about not so much the absence of God, the, the death of God, if you will, 
with Exodus Gods and Kings, <laughs> which I always find really, really amazing. But uh, certainly, I think, could this movie, Alien Paradise Lost, be as much about the discovery of Satan, of, a, of a, an analogous figure for the devil, as Prometheus was for, for God? That's what I think could be interesting. You've piqued my interest. My interest has definitely been piqued. Should we break out this with the, uh, the, the breaking movie news klaxon and then let's go listen to Sam Smith's uh, Bond theme which Ooh, is just dropped looking forward to that too oh that's gonna be fun beep 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 breaking news klaxon I don't know I'm hoping The Martian will be great everything I'm, I'm hearing suggests that that's going to be amazing why not do more of that kind of craziness like I mean go Kim Stanley Robinson's Red, Green and Blue Mars series you know, do something. Well, he was attached forever to the forever to the Forever War, wasn't he? As well, I mean, why not? You know, Forever War would be yeah. amazing. I mean, he's 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 been, he's one of those people like Guillermo del Toro who's attached constantly mm. to loads and loads of stuff. The Martian came to him yeah. quite abruptly, I think, and and he was in the middle of doing developing something, and then he said, "No, this is what I want to do," and he met Matt Damon, and they sparked, and it went from there. So that so things can turn around very fast, and I wouldn't be surprised if this doesn't necessarily lead to four Prometheus films but we shall see but he does seem lately to be springboarding around from one sort of film you know The Counselor which didn't quite come off to uh, Exodus Gods and Kings a very big epic to The Martian which is a space adventure basically so he's doing lots of different things I would be surprised if he suddenly commits himself to one particular genre on that level and also you know where's that Fassbender who's super busy there's a lot of other variables the other reason why Ridley Scott's in the ether at the moment is he features indirectly in Steve Jobs Oh, you get to talk about it again. I know, Tenuous Link. Steve Jobs' movie is coming, guys. Um, Is it? Yes. (laughs) You've never mentioned it before, Phil. But his 1984 ad for uh, for Apple features quite prominently in that movie. Very good. um, Which I have now seen. (gasps) I can say nothing about beyond that. Have you uh, signed a scary eye embargo? Eye embargo. Eye embargo? Oh, shoot, I think I have, actually. Okay. So let's say no more about it. But um, <laughs> <laughs> is that how embargoes work? <laughs> None of yes. that happened. Yes. Moving on. Listen to us now, listeners. You, you did not hear anything. Do we have one of those little men in black doohickeys? Yeah, it's a yeah. little hard to make that work audibly. Just forget you heard that as well. What do you think about John Wick 2? I'm, I'll tell you what, I'm mega hyped and super pumped. I too am both hyped and pumped. Uh, is there some movie news as well? Oh, right. So John Wick 2. Uh, it just happened to be mega hyped and super pumped. Um, so I'm glad that you uh, you mentioned that. I like the first John Wick. You sound unsure. I like the first John Wick a lot. And I'm very glad they're making another. Uh, Nick's Great. already made a joke about this. I think it was in the magazine. You call this one John Wick's and sell it in a hardware store. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone wins. You could team up with Robert Dias. I don't know if there's like a if 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 there was a German person involved, then you could get in a Vix product placement as well somehow. Mm. I feel like that would work. Wasn't there a wasn't there a very actual fight sequence in a hardware store in that Denzel film? Yes, it was. The Equalizer, yes, yes the it was. Equalizer. It's been done. Yeah. The film so John Wick could have been. They could shoot that in oh. John Wick. It's a weird one, isn't it? Because I don't imagine anyone that was making this film expected that there would be demand for a sequel. No, and again, it's one of those interesting things where Prometheus just about gets over three hundred million. And it gets a sequel. John Wick, I think worldwide, made it something in the region of fifty to sixty million dollars. And obviously, everything is you know tempered by this will be a, obviously in a different budget range from Prometheus. But it's intriguing to see 
the level at which certain films can trigger that green light. I'm I'm I'm, in, I'm intrigued by it. I thought the first film was perfectly entertaining, and I, I, I can do an action and mode. Yes, great. Yes. Quint from Antical News did a very funny joke about John Wick. He said, "I'll be interested if he gets killed in the first five minutes, and his puppy has to sit out <laughs> and uh, get get revenge for his death." I would also watch that. That would be amazing. How? <laughs> just it would just be a different film. You just have to go with it. It's going to cute people to death. Oh, can you oh. imagine? It was a little bulldog puppy at the end as well. I mean, they've got a fearsome bite. Oh, spoiler, so. I haven't seen it yet. <gasps> You're telling me you just told me what the puppy at the end is? No. Okay. But I have a question. Is this? Does this relate to uh, the Taken syndrome? Is this just people trying to make that kind of thing happen? Well, I thought if that. If they have to force it. Cause but this is way... John Wick is way more stylish than any of the Taken films. Not so much the, the style or the aesthetic, but just the, 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 the genre. This genre of, you know, actors that are well-established in different... Other, other ways. Jerry action. Kind of, yeah. Keanu's not quite at that level, is he? But no, he but is someone that is, you can kind of re, reboot him as a cinematic figure, as a draw card at the cinema. Yeah. You know, the Equalizer smacked to that as well. There seems to be a lot of those sort of films at the moment. There are. I just think, um, yeah, and I mean, there, on paper, I was absolutely that sort of, not quite cynical about it, but slightly dismissive of it. And then I, I saw it and had an absolute blast. I just think it's much better than most of those other films. It's much more aware of what it is, and I think it's much better at what it does. Um, and it has a puppy! It has a very cute puppy. It has Ian McShane. It has about 85 members of the cast of The Wire. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You and know what? Film of the year. <laughs> I've, I've turned around on this one. It had two directors, too, didn't it? It did have two directors. So this one will presumably yeah. have four directors. Because that's how these things work. That's it's how it works. Yeah, that's how it works. Okay. Uh, what else is happening in the world of film? Well, there's talk uh, this week of a Sicario sequel. Uh, oh, okay. This is difficult I, to talk about, though, isn't it? You, yes. you know, I'm the guy who reads spoilers mm. for TV shows, yeah. but mm. I'm, I no. don't, I haven't I'm not going to get into spoilers. No, but here's the thing. I read accident because I, yeah, I was googling Sicario the other day to get some information for a something for the magazine, and I. You know the way you go to like the Google homepage and it goes news. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah, so it's a Sicario. Sicario sequel planned and it'll revolve around and I read the name of a character the and I was just like yeah. and I go, Well now I know that yeah. that yeah. person. I'm, I'm not gonna talk about that. Movie which is meant to be incredibly tense and, yeah, it uh, is. and it's like, oh, God, Yeah, okay. it is that is frustrating. Well here's it? what I'm gonna say, okay. This movie is incredibly tense and it is uh it's one of those films, it's a v- very much a sort of a procedural film and it drops you into the middle of this procedure this mission and because you're seeing it through the eyes of emily blunt's fbi agent she's kind of somewhat kept in the dark about a lot of what's going on and has to gradually put together little pieces of information and figure out what's actually happening with the team that she is ostensibly a part of um that is not spoon-fed to you at any point so even by the end of the film you've got a you've got an idea of what's going on you've got an idea of why people are doing what they're doing but it's still it's never been like laid out you know expositioned very fully and very completely so it feels like there's a lot of meat to it it feels like there's a lot of stuff unexplored around the edges that you could absolutely get into in a future in a further film it does feel like this is a a tiny partial vision of a very full world so in that sense a sequel makes a lot of sense and i don't think i've given anything away there i mean it's not the kind of film though that you you usually think sequel because while it is tense and while it does have a couple of incredible action scenes it doesn't have that sort of action film feel to it this is like announcing a, a sequel to traffic it just feels very odd because this feels like quite frankly it feels like an oscar ish 
film. I'm not saying it's necessarily going to be nominated, but it's going to be in the conversation. It's probably going to be nominated for cinematography, if nothing else. And so it is unusual, I think, that they would be talking sequel this early on. And at the moment, it's only had, I think, one weekend on limited release in the States. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly an expression of confidence in it. Yes. But it's uh, it's an unusual discussion to be having. So while I can see the logic, I'm also a little bit surprised. Yes, but uh, by the way, I'm equally pissed off with John Wick 2, because now I know that John Wick survived. Ugh. So... Or does he? Maybe his or, ghost comes yeah. back. <laughs> yes. It'd be great if you could team up with the Equalizer. Like just rampage through the BQ. That'd be great. Is there, there anything was, else? There's or something about just... Guillermo talking about Pacific Rim. Maybe it's back on. Maybe it isn't. Yes. But again, hopefully we're going to be talking to the great GDT, GDT on this podcast very, very soon. And by the way, just very, very quickly before we start plugging this week's uh, this month's issue of Empire, just for, uh, I'm going to mention this again at the end of the podcast, but a lot of people have been asking about the whereabouts of the promised Mad Max Fury Road spoiler special podcast and I can, I'm can i delighted to confirm that it is actually happening we said all along that we wouldn't do it if we couldn't get George Miller on the podcast and we are getting George Miller on the podcast for about 45 minutes which in my experience of George Miller the great George Miller is about three questions worth so uh <laughs> Uh, hopefully we're going to stretch 45 minutes to an hour or so on the podcast that's happening next week and then we're going to be doing our usual spoiler special bunch of idiots in the room talking about it uh, kind of thing that'll be up I know it's out on Blu-ray already but it'll be up around the second week middle-ish of October I can't be any more precise than that but we're very very excited uh, that the the great Mr. Miller is uh, gracing us with his presence on this podcast and speaking of other th- other films we didn't do in the summer but we're hopefully going to do again Chris McQuarrie has agreed to come on the podcast to talk about uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation so that's, that's very exciting so that'll hopefully be happening in the next uh, few weeks so yeah good work all good right should we plug uh, let's plug what we do for a living, which is uh, this month's issue of Empire. It is a wonderful issue of Empire. It is the third time in our history that we have uh, a guest editor following in the footsteps of Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson. Sam Mendes was our boss this month. Uh, it is, as you might expect, a Road to Perdition-themed issue. Um, <laughs> lots that, of, is that right, Chris? I don't I, think that's right, Helen. I, I thought think it was I'm maybe... being facetious. Yeah. Um, forget you heard that yeah so this is this is a very exciting uh, Spectre issue it's so exciting even Helen an avowed hater of all things Bond Ooh, loves Bond. it I do you love it it's very stylish it is very stylish very very slick uh, Phil Hi. do you want to talk about a little bit what's in the issue and then I can talk a little bit about what's in the issue and then we can meet up later on have a drink okay sounds like a nice idea well like you say there's a big Sam Mendes through line mm-hmm. and of course a Bond through line as well so what we've done is we've got Mendez to do all the work for us and taken the month off. So that worked well. Uh, I mean, it's not like he has anything better he to nothing, do right but now. Yeah, we fit it in between editing and post-production and all the yeah. other commitments to Bond. So there is very much a Spectre streak, but there's also a Daniel Craig era streak as well. He's got He's got his two, his two of his three writers, uh, Neil Purvis and Robert, Robert Wade, Wade. Yeah. to talk us through how... Spectre as an organisation threads through what we've seen so far. So peppered in, in amongst this broader coverage is some interesting, some really interesting stuff about where how we've got to this point. And this is part of a four movie denouement. Um, uh, also, obviously, we've been on set. Yeah, we've been I on set. Was, yeah, many many times. We've been on set too many times. You could argue from, too many from that times. Point of view. Yeah, um, I think the only person who was on set more than, than us was uh, Sam Mendes. That's correct. <laughs> but he wasn't rampaging through the craft services like we were, was he? <laughs> Oh no. I almost died in the Alps because I didn't have enough clothes. 
stroke any really <laughs> um yes. they had wow. to sell me Phil, they literally had to sell me a jacket to keep me alive Phil likes to do his uh, visits not totally naked oh, but i was wearing inappropriate attire for the for the climate because it's really cold apparently in the uh, in the in the austrian alps over tiliac which is where we went for the you've probably seen some of the sequence in the trailer mm-hmm. the, the 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 chase with the light aircraft um, and so I was there for that. And that's, there's a piece about the anatomy of putting together a stunt sequence. You yes. were, of course... Yeah, th- this is the amazing thing. So I asked to do this movie because I'm a huge Bond fan. And if I'm honest, I wanted to you know, get some of the Bond glamour reflected back on me. I wanted to uh, travel the world. I wanted to get a, a glimpse of the James Bond lifestyle and, and do the exotic set visits. You did. I went to Pinewood three times. Fuck him, <laughs> Which is really lovely. If you get on the Piccadilly line and you head to Uxbridge, oh, it's a long journey and you can, you've got time to do whatever it is you want to do. That's right. <laughs> can you just go four? Yeah. I mean, the Piccadilly line, four. Four, yeah. But, you know, the issue the issue is fantastic. It's really, really good. And there's, there's you know, tons of um, Mendes studded all the way through it. He was probably sick of me by the end. There's a really good interview with uh, him and Daniel Craig about their work together and their career together and you know just not just Bond but Road to Perdition and their enduring friendship and all that sort of stuff and there's also there's a Christoph Waltz interview there's there's tons of stuff in there if you're a Bond fan if you're not a Bond fan there's lots in there as well there's uh, Daniel Radcliffe and James McAvoy uh, talking about Victor Frankenstein there's a great American beauty oral history where we got everybody to talk about American beauty because it's 16 years old this year and I think think Sam Mendes had something to do with it. Uh, we've got lots of great stuff as well going on. There's, uh, there's a wonderful shot of uh, from John Favreau's Jungle Book with John Favreau talking about that movie for I think pretty much the first time mm. anywhere. It's it's a really, really a sumptuous, uh, bespokes the word we've used on the cover. It, it does feel very, very stylish. Handmade almost. Correct. And Sam Mendes was very hands-on. As well, Phil, as, as you will know, he was, uh, you know, we, we went to issue meetings with him and he read every single page and he had corrections and he had suggestions and he had, you know, very much uh, an editor's role while at the same time making one of the year's biggest films. How he did it, I don't know. Good job. We should also mention in the at home section as a as a as an appetizer for the your George Miller spoiler special. Yes. Uh, a sort of a the viewing guide to Mad mm-hmm. Max. A Fury four Road. page, really uh, in depth. Yeah, George Miller talking about all sorts of stuff. But don't worry, we will be left lots of areas free for the spoiler special. So that's going to be that's going to be great. It's a really really good issue, and it's just four pounds fifty, in all good, evil, and spectre affiliated news agents. So mm-hmm. go along and uh, and check that one out. Okay, so that's the the grand plug over, but do bad. Um, time now for this week's guest. Since his last appearance on the pod, David Oyelowo has had uh, quite the time of it with the likes of Lee Daniels, The Butler, a small role in Chris Nolan's Interstellar. He became the first black Bond. More on that later. Uh, and of course, he wowed as Martin Luther King in Selma. Uh, he's now producing this week's drama, Captive, in which he also stars as a desperate killer on the run. He popped in this week after the podcast was recorded, but I'm, I'm telling you, it, it went swimmingly. Um, and I had a chat to him. He's a lovely guy. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast for the second time by David Oyelowo. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Great to be here. Indeed. And you are uh, the star and producer of this week's Captive. Producer, really, for the first time. Yes. This yeah. is, uh, yeah, I've, um, 
I've got a few uh, in the can and some on the way, but this is the first one to actually mm. see the light of day. So it's uh, nerve-wracking, but very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> is it doubly nerve-wracking now? It's yeah. definitely, definitely. I, I didn't anticipate it being quite as different uh, as when you just do a movie and you sort of trust other people to, to do what they need to do to get it out there. You know, you're, you're invested in a different way. But I really enjoy the process of bringing something to fruition mm-hmm. in a bigger way than just as an actor. As an actor you finish the film mm-hmm. you're done yep. you move on but as a producer you're there right from yeah, day one yeah it's like being a parent you're <laughs> there at conception and you're there at graduation I think for uh, for many people this will be the first time they've seen you since Selma yes you know, yeah, you know, that amazing performance in Selma and this character Brian Nichols mm. is a real life person is the complete opposite of yeah. Martin Luther King in yeah. many ways. Is that something that, is that one of the things that motivated you to, to do it? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it is by design in the sense that I'm always looking to ring the changes. I'm always looking to scare myself. I want to do things that I'm not sure I'll be able to achieve, not sure if they'll succeed, because I do think that that's where true creativity lies. I actually shot Captive before Selma. I would still have played that kind of role after Selma, because like you say, it's antithetical mm. to Dr. And in a sense, that's what I mean by creating work that I want to do as opposed to what's coming my way. As you can imagine, having played Dr. King, every civil rights, noble, kind of African-American anything uh, who ever lived has sort of crossed my desk ever since. And as amazing as it was to play Dr. King, I'm not interested in being identified with just the one character. I am so honored and so elated to have been able to do that film and for it to be received the way it was but you know I, I think it would be death really creatively to only be associated with that so it is conscious to try and play antithetical roles to anything I've done before okay so a hypothetical yes if one of the scripts that crossed your path after Selma mm. was another Dr. King project at right. another time of his life for mm. example uh, the Paul Greengrass project for example Memphis which was running for a, a long long time mm. I'm not quite sure what's happening with that at the moment if something like that came your way would you consider would you play that, play that man again there is definitely a never say never element to this I think it would there would have to be very real reasons for doing it there would have to be a thought a need a clear path towards making something that moves the conversation along because you know the effect that Selma had on the audience is the stuff of dreams really Mm. and and so for me I don't want to tarnish that legacy I certainly don't want to like happens in franchises where you sort of have the sequel and you go "Eh," you know (laughs) and it's it's kind of kind of slightly taints uh, what everyone loved about the first one so there would have to be very real reasons why I would jump into that right now I can't think what they would be but you just never know I was at a screening of Selma last year it was a BAFTA screening and I saw something at a screening I've never seen before Mm. I saw you were afforded a standing ovation at the end. Fully deserved. Amazing performance. And at that point, I thought, you're going to win every award known to man (laughs) for this role. Right. And I don't know if this is a difficult subject or not, but in the end, you weren't nominated for an Oscar, which I think is a travesty. But were you surprised by that? Were you disappointed by that? How did you react to that? I was disappointed only because, well, partly because one of the motivations behind working so hard to get Selma made is I never could understand why the only American to have 
a holiday named after them in the 20th century. There had never been a film where he was the center of the narrative. I couldn't mm. understand why we had a Jimmy Hoffa movie, a J. Edgar Hoover <laughs> movie, before a Martin Luther King yeah. movie. He is such a transcendent figure, someone who genuinely, undeniably left the planet better than he found it. Any success or recognition or accolade that we didn't get, what was most irksome about it was the fact that I felt like he wasn't being celebrated in a sense because uh, what we tried to do is not only make a great film but to really showcase a great person. That was the thing that sort of left me feeling a little, you know, and I have to say there were days where I thought, oh man, we want to accentuate, we want to further elevate this man's reputation and who he was and what he did. By the same token, you're not owed anything. Films are not just for award season, they're for life. And, I, and in many ways, retrospectively, not getting all of those accolades probably brought more attention to the film than may have otherwise been the case. If I had just been one of five nominees and the Ava had just been one of five nominees, it would have been, okay, that was a great film, but people were really... I mean, people come up to me now and between loving the film and being so annoyed at what we didn't get, there's very real love for both me and the film. And, you know, you can't buy that, really. You know, that there's the silver lining. So you find people are more angry on your behalf. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my good. There was a guy, I was recently doing a film in South Africa and this guy, I thought he was going to beat me up. He was so <laughs> annoyed. And, and I was like, dude, I, I really, I had nothing to do with the fact that I didn't get nominated and sure. I don't know how to help you with that. And he was just like, no, you don't understand. In my house, we boycotted the Oscars. It's the first time I've never watched the, I mean, I, why, why would I watch it? They don't represent me. They don't know me. They don't, you know, and I was just like, okay, I, I don't know how to help you, my friend. Going back to Captive, you shot Captive then before Selma. Brian Nichols, was he the way in for you? When did you discover this story? The way in for me actually was Ashley Smith. Okay. I mean, I just found who she went on to become beyond this event really inspiring. The fact that this was a woman who, in many ways, she was bereft of hope. You know, she, she could not shake this meth addiction she had. She had lost custody of her daughter. She was a widow. She was really captive in, in her own way. It took a murderer breaking into your apartment, holding you hostage for seven hours, to be the moment beyond which you wake up and go, you know what, I'm going to grab my second chance. I can't relate to it in that nothing's nothing that dramatic has happened to me, but I can definitely relate to a rock bottom moment, a moment whereby you are bereft of seeing a way forward being the moment when which you, you look up and say, you know what, life is so precious, mm. let me grab it with both hands and move forward, which is what she did beyond this uh, terrible, terrible incident that she had to endure. There's a motif that goes throughout the film, there's a book called The Purpose Driven Life. That's right. And there's, there are several moments in the film where people talk about leading a life without purpose. There is no way a murderer and a meth addict hold up together <laughs> in an apartment there is any pinprick of light. But yeah. there was. And it was enough for her to dig her way out. And I, I haven't had anything anywhere near as dramatic as that, but I do find it incredibly inspiring. But you did at one point, you took this enormous risk of leaving London, moving your family lock, stock and barrel to yeah. LA, which was gamble, I guess, on your part. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Were, there, were there moments, I mean, did you hit the ground running when you got to LA? Or were oh, there moments boy. in those first, say, six months? 
months. No, we moved to LA. That was in 2007. And then yeah. the very next year, there was the double whammy of a writer's strike and an economic crash, a global economic crash. One of the first things that quite rightly stops happening is movies being made <laughs> whilst the world is pushing the reset button on a financial catastrophe. And so I had about 14 months where I didn't work. And when you're a father of two and another on the way at the time, that is not an ideal situation. That was tough. I remember oh. a moment when my wife and I between us had three dollars in our wallet. You're kidding me. No, it got it got that bad. That was definitely a dark moment. But you know what? Again, this pinprick of hope. I fell in love with my wife all the more. You know, we were so grateful for the children we had because in many ways you're down to the bare bones, the essence of who you are and what you believe in. And again, that that's that's something that is a, a good thing to remember in yeah. good times and bad. Amazing. How do you get through? How do you turn three dollars into more than three dollars? Rather than uh, acting on a yeah. set, you teach teach acting at a university, which is what I did for a moment there in, in, in 2008. You muscle your way through. It's, people often ask me, young people especially, advice on becoming an actor. And I always say, and I, you know, it's, it's nothing new. People say this all the time, but I always say only do it if it's the only thing on earth you want to do, because that's what keeps you going in the hard times, which come for Everyone, even if you're the biggest movie star in the world, you'll make that film that is deemed a flop. No one's calling, no one's, you know, patting you on the back, no one's trying to employ you for the next film. Everyone has those down moments. And mm. so what keeps you going is knowing that it's the only thing on earth you want to do. So, so your path led you eventually then to to captive producing and, and starring as Brian Nichols. It's a again an extraordinary performance because especially the first 10, 15 minutes, you don't say a word. And he's an interesting guy. He's a killer mm -hmm. and he goes through different mood swings or there's a moment in the film where he's high on crystal meth. It presents, it, to me, it seems to present you with a series of different acting challenges within the one guy. Yeah, it's a very astute observation on your part. That was by design, you know, not having him speak for the entire first act is to play on the prejudice of the audience. You know, when we watch the news and we see a killer on the loose or we see mm -hmm. a mugshot of someone who's done terrible things, understandably, you judge them. You form an opinion on the basis of an image, on the basis of a one-dimensional image that is coming at you. A lot of the time, you don't really know the person behind the headline. We do that in the movie as well and he was a monster that day he did do the most reprehensible things and he's now serving multiple life sentences mm -hmm. for having done what he did but there is a reason why Ashley Smith didn't become his fifth victim there was something about the interaction between those two people that reawakened the humanity that had been so deeply buried in him in order for him to do what he did. There is this blank spot in the story, the seven hours that they spent together in this apartment. Only those two people know what happened, but we know the result of what those seven hours were, which is that he let her go and gave himself up. How does a guy who killed four people that morning end up doing that and yeah. that's what we wanted to explore and so beyond as you say these acting conundrums really of presenting a monster but also his humanity but also not wanting to disrespect the people who were killed and the families who are still suffering with that loss not wanting to exonerate him yeah. excuse yeah. him for what he did the biggest challenge was actually not making him feel like an action hero because you know this is a guy who is very 
built. You know, he was an ex-football player. He did break out of the courthouse in a suit with no shirt on. He did have two guns running around L.A. And normally you think, okay, David Oyelowo is the new Jason Statham, you know, and that's that's what we had to really guard against. And, mm. and so the, the way to do that was to have it be as cold-blooded and true as we could make it. Have you talked to Brian Nichols? Or did, have you ever met him? I couldn't. I tried. Uh, but, you know, the nature of his sentence, I mean, he's been in solitary confinement for nearly 10 years. You know, his parents are the only ones who can see him wow. and access to him is impossible. Did you get any sense from interactions you had with his family or with the, the system around him that he's reformed? Well, it's interesting. I, you know, I, I've recently spent a bit of time with his mother who sees him once a week and she says that he feels he's where he's supposed to be, which when you think 23 hours of every day he is alone in a room, she says that he is repentant, apologetic, mortified by what he did. I honestly don't know, you know, because mm. I'm only going on the words of, of his mother. The other thing that was kind of surreal for me is that, you know, as you can imagine with the film coming out, I've done a number of interviews and he read apparently an interview I'd given recently. I was very moved and encouraged mm. by it. I think he can tell that even though what he did was reprehensible, the life of Ashley Smith is giving people hope. And so the fact that some good is coming out of this awful situation, I imagine, uh, gives him a bit of solace. Your producer on this film, it's a very dark role. I mean, he does go left and you expect him to go right. There are moments of light for the character as well. But it is a very, very dark role. You start off, as you say, by killing four people on, mm. a, on a rampage. Is it difficult to separate the darkness that must have been inside you as an actor from the day-to-day -day of, oh, I have to shepherd this production through, I have to have the other hat on at the yeah, same time. Absolutely. You know, I, I look at actors like Kenneth Branagh and Mel Gibson who are able to direct movies that they're in, and I just don't know how they do it. I mean, you know, because it is, for me, when I play a character, the idea, the hope, the aim is full immersion uh, to the point where you're not judging the character, but you are playing them as truthfully as possible. And as you say, you, you have to go to those dark places. You have to entertain the headspace that this character was in in order for it to feel real. But the job of a, of a producer is to have a bird's eye view on the entire production. Mm. Um, I had to very much defer to my fellow producers from that point of view and just try and stay in the zone. But it's very difficult when you have Ashley Smith on set with you, the real <laughs> Ashley Smith. And, you know, I can see her looking at me from behind the monitor freaked out because, you know, I'm representing the guy who basically instigated this traumatic event in her life. You're yeah. trying to be respectful of that or I'll tell the truth of the story. I mean, we had Candy Wilhelm, who is the widow of the customs officer that Brian killed. She came to set, I gave her a hug, I could feel her trembling in my arms. And so, you know, that's a lot to be to be juggling, but I also deem it a privilege to be telling what I deem to be a meaningful story. You have just recently become James Bond. In an audiobook. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be clear. I cannot tell you how many people think I am literally about to take over the reins from Daniel Craig. This is crazy, people. Is is it but you know, in our clickbait society, these all these articles so deliberately did this. David Yellow is the first black James Bond in an audiobook. You know, it's just like but anyway, I guess the fact that some people can live with the idea 
idea is encouraging in and of itself, but it's not actually in the, <laughs> the movies, people. It is the audiobook of Anthony Horowitz's Trigger Mortis. That's right. Which is on sale now in all good audio <laughs> virtual <Yeah>. bookshops. <laughs> um, how, what was that experience like? Because uh, the book itself, I mean, I was looking at this the other day, the, the audio version is nine hours and 48 minutes. Yeah. So I'm guessing you were probably in a booth for two, three days easily? Yes, for sure. I actually, you know, you do get brain addled if you're in there too long. Uh, so we actually split it up over five days. So five I, days. I, I would just go in and do a, a few hours each day, yeah. Um, why did you do it? It's, it's fascinating to me because... Uh, looking back at previous audio uh, versions of Bond books, like mm. Dominic West and Jeremy Northam mm-hmm. have, have have done readings as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I, I'm always intrigued when when name actors do things like this. Why? What was the appeal for you? Well, I mean, the Ian Fleming estate asked for me specifically. Well, that, there you go. That, that's that's, that's, <laughs> that's going to get your attention. Mic drop. Um, exactly. Um, <laughs> I also had just had an ankle operation. So I was, I was lying down at home, a very, very rare sort of moment of me uh, uh, taking a break. So, of course, I can't possibly just sit down and enjoy myself. I've got to go and do an audio book. But the timing um, sort of worked out perfectly. And look, it's a... It's a brand, it's a character, it's a cinematic legacy. To mm-hmm. be anything, uh, you know, related to it is, of course, an honor. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it, you know, it was it was a challenge that, you know, the, the bigger challenge was not, not playing James Bond, but Pussy Galore, um, <laughs> which I also had to read for the, uh, for the audio book. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm up for a challenge. <laughs> how on earth did you do that how did you get the character oh it's a tricky thing with audiobooks because you've kind of got to acknowledge the change you've got to make a delineation between the characters but you can't sort of go full on a black man you know you, but otherwise you just sound like a, a very camp uh, <laughs> butch uh, Bond girl uh, which is very off-putting uh, so uh, you've, you've got to kind of try and find the balance so uh, how did you deal with the line the name's Bond James Bond. You know what? Anthony Horowitz didn't give me that. Oh, you know, I, I get to say, I get to say, my name is James Bond, but not the the, the name's Bond, James Bond. Can you improvise um, when you do? <laughs> <laughs> I should have just thrown it in there, and just you know, just for kicks. <laughs> um, and uh, what's next for you? Uh, I'm literally days away from um, heading out to Botswana to do a film called A United Kingdom, mm-hmm. uh, in which uh, I play the king of Botswana who, uh, in the 40s, just after the Second World War, married an English lady called Ruth Williams. And uh, it's about how their interracial marriage caused a storm between South Africa, Botswana, and the UK mm-hmm. um, in the uh, late 40s, early 50s. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rosamund Pike is playing my wife, and Emma Asante, who recently directed Bell, mm-hmm. is going to be directing that. So yeah, we start in a, in a few weeks. Fantastic. So uh, a bit of a Jack Reacher reunion. Um, with, uh, uh, yes, you're Rosamund. right. Yeah. You're right. I won't be tasing her this time. I'll be, <laughs> I'll be, I'll be kissing her instead. It sounds much better. Yes, yeah. yes, for all concerned. And then after that, presumably coming back to star as Bond and Bond 25. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's get those rumors out there now. Let's make it happen. Let's keep it going. Yeah. Let's keep it going. But, but it, does, it, it is something that's very much in the, in the, in the public consciousness at the moment, the zeitgeist, this idea of, of, of a black Bond, of mm. uh, whether could, could a black actor play James Bond. Yeah. Um, Idris Elba's been the one who's been linked most, mm-hmm. most recently. 
Would you be interested? What I'm really interested in and what I'm encouraged by is the fact that there is a very vocal and large audience that are asking for this and that it won't go away. I'm sure Idris Elba is bored to tears with with it being talked about. But, you know, one of the, the, the challenges I face in Hollywood as a black actor is... Th- this constant notion that uh, to have a black actor at the center of a story is somehow going to marginalize and minimize the audience. Yeah. And that has been disproved time and again. I mean, the, 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 the actor who has the biggest box office grosses of all time is Samuel L. Jackson. No, one, no one's films have made more money. You know, one of the biggest movie stars in the world is Will Smith. Mm-hmm. You know, and, 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 uh, and, and yet there is this perpetuated myth about, you know, how challenging it is to have black people in movies. And I think the audience is now really being very vocal about what they want to see and what they're prepared to support. And so whether it's Bond or something like Bond or giving Idris or myself or whoever their version of Jason Bourne, you know, the audience is saying they want that and that's hugely encouraging. Now, would I do it? I don't know. You know, in the same way that playing Dr. King is both a blessing and a potential curse in terms of what you're allowed to do going forward, I would have to sit down with Daniel and really uh, uh, ask him, you know, how he has found playing Bond in relation to doing other movies because I don't want to just ever be associated with one character. And so, uh, you know, that, that's a, that would be a big factor for me. But you are, and I think I can say this without fear of contradiction, a bit of a smoothie. I think you would, you would fit that character very nicely. You're looking very dapper today. For uh, thank you. Thank you very much. No, I love the Bond films. And, you know, uh, and that's why I wanted to do the audiobook. And look, what an honor, what a privilege to be to be asked to do anything like that. But, um, you know, you, 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 to me, the bigger issue is I want to do this till I'm 80, 90. And sometimes when you're so identified with the one thing, that becomes challenging. Absolutely. Last question, I promise you. Did you do the audiobook uh, in a tux? <laughs> Who told you? Someone sent you the photograph. Someone sent you the photograph. I did, and I insisted on having very scantily clad ladies around me uh, wielding golden guns. And you recorded um, it in an underground volcano. Is this, is this true? You heard it here first, people. Oh, dear me. Um, if only, if only. <laughs> uh, categorically, no. <laughs> okay. On that bombshell, David Yellow, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank, thank you. you. What a nice man he what will have man. been when that's recorded tomorrow. Do you know, when he saw me and burst into tears, I was a bit surprised. Uh-huh. <laughs> Again, the a trousers little. were missing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he said, please put them back on. And I, I, I went, yeah, this is just how it is. Get comfortable. Deal with it, I said. Probably will say. Right, uh, let's start the reviews uh, this week. It's, a, I think, a fairly low-key week at the old... Yeah. At the old multiplex. Uh, so if you want to go and see Everest or Bill again, there's lots of options there. Or well. a walk in the woods, which I saw last week in Hanover, the time where Bill Bryson was living when he went. Get out. Yeah. Of town. Really? Well, I did. Yeah. Wow. Where were you last week? Uh, I was in New Hampshire and wow. Cape Cod at one point as well. In Vermont. Wow. I went to Ben and Jerry's. I also uh, did a tour of Jaws locations uh-huh. and visited the house of the writer of Little Women. And it's all basically true. Little Women, as it turns out. So that was exciting. They were that tiny. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Good fact. Anyway, let's talk about reviews. Hot facting. Okay, so let's start this week's reviews. It's a fairly low-key week at the Multiplex, but we're going to start off with Anton Corbine's Life. Oh, life. Oh, life. Will you keep that Desiree song out of my head? Anyway, um, life is uh, the story of a sort of convergence of two young men kind of on the brink of success. So one is... James Dean, it's not you and Phil, Chris, no. Uh, one is James Dean, who's played here by Dane DeHaan, um, and the other one is photographer Dennis Stock, who's played here by Robert Pattinson. Um, yeah, uh, that was suddenly just from the ether, teenage girls screamed, I don't know. I wonder if it'll happen again. Robert Pattinson. I've calmed down. Oh. Anywho, the time is just as East of Eden is about to premiere and that's Dean's first leading role. It's about to make him a star. At the same time, he's waiting to hear back if he's got the role in Rebel Without a Cause. Spoiler, he's going to get it. Um, and and Stock is a kind of young, hungry photographer based in LA, miserable there, doesn't want to be there. It's seen as very much not the place to be. He's stuck doing set photos, which is not what he wants to do. And when he sees this guy, he meets him... He's intrigued by him. He then goes to see a preview of East of Eden and he senses that this guy is a star and that he's going to he's got something really special and and that he is therefore Dennis's ticket basically mm. back into the big leagues into the the more prestigious work. Mm. So initially it does seem like De- Dean is maybe courting Dennis a bit like he wants you know, he wants a photographer on his side. He wants that stardom. He increasingly then kind of comes to doubt that and comes to question it. And then it's it's Stock who's kind of chasing him. So there's this real tension between the two of them. And they're both torn between seeing themselves as artists and seeing themselves kind of as commodities. And again, there's a really, really interesting tension there. And there's a question of who's using whom at any stage, really, in the film. There's a lot of acting going on. And sometimes it shows. <laughs> Um, and and you know there are times where the film drags. I think this is a, this is weirdly a film I liked more after I'd seen it rather than while I was watching it. Okay. Because yeah. after I'd seen it, I felt more yeah. thoughtful about it. And sometimes when I was watching it, I was just like, "Oh, get on with it, come on." But it's you know it's it's really beautifully put together. Mm. And I Look. do think there's some re- it's just really interesting uh, dynamic there. And I think that uh, Corbin, given that he is a very high level photographer himself and has yes. has you know photographed basically everyone it's interesting that he's actually very harsh on his own profession here and certainly in terms of the way he portrays stock there is something and i i'm sorry for using the word but there is something vampiric about him and and there is something there's a kind of hunger there that isn't always reflected and you know dean doesn't come off in a, as a sort of uncomplicated hero either mm. but but there's a really interesting just tension between the two of them so yep. so yeah I really liked it we did not like it as much as you did yeah. meh <laughs> fight it's to their own fight 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 uh, we gave life three stars but you know what oh what that's a recommendation so I, w- I wouldn't be much over that I'd be like three and a half three and a half we yeah. rounded up to four and you know what Maybe. We're going to an extra star for luck. So Helen would give life five stars uh, and says it's her film of the year. Perfect. Wow. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So this yeah. is what happened to Attack of the Clones. <laughs> I, I would like to claim that. I would like to claim that I wanted to give it three and then someone took it off me, beat me around the head and then gave it five. Let's make that the story, shall we? Sure. Uh, let's move on now to 99 Homes, starring Andrew Garfield, Spider-Man and uh, Michael Shannon, General Sod. But this is not a superhero film. Don't worry, you don't have to see in the first 98 Homes to make any sense of it. What's this about, Phil? It is a film set in 2010 in the kind of the aftershock of the US housing crisis and it's about a very bad man 
called Rick Carver, played by Michael Shannon, with all of his sort of subdued malevolence on display <laughs> as a realtor whose job it is basically to repossess people's houses. Um, if you've seen the very excellent J.C. Chandor financial services, Lehman Brothers style, Wall Street drama, Margin Call, this is mm. kind of mortgage call in a sense. <laughs> it's more of a human drama about the ramifications of the this kind of moral grey area of business than it is a thriller like Margin Call, but it's very much about how humans deal with very, very stressful, difficult situations. And at the heart of it is Dennis Dennis Wash, Andrew Garfield's character, who is a honest uh, guy that's full of integrity. He's a builder. Um, he's a single father who lives with his mother, Laura Dern, mm. and his child. And he is one of the people whose houses is repossessed by, by this guy Carver who stands there at these repossessions with the police on his side, uh, passive-aggressively calling everyone serve, politely on the surface, but with this kind of menace underneath, vaping away, and just basically, you know, sorry to use the word vampiric again, but it's kind <laughs> of a, you know, a capitalist vampire, sucking people's belongings and their money, working the system, rotting it uh, to his heart's content. And he basically takes Garfield under his wing, and it's his journey of sort of moral corruption to the point where Garfield ends up becoming the perpetrator of the crime he was once a victim of effectively except it's not really a crime so mm. it's a it's a it's a moody subdued angry drama um and it's got a lot of a lot of punch to it we've given it four stars it's directed mm. by ramin barani who's uh, an american director of iranian extraction who interestingly roger ebert once called one of his directors of the of the noughties um ebert was a big fan of his early work and this is his i think it's his fifth feature film uh, and it's a very good one you may find it at times a little overwrought in the sense that it, it, it's very full of emotion, but understandably considering the circumstances that it's set. We've given it four, as I say, and it's it's very, very good. Four stars then for 99 homes. So yeah, that's definitely a recommendation. And uh, last but not least, this week we have uh, Captive, uh, starring the aforementioned and aforheard David Oyelowo. It's based on a true story. Uh, it's about a man called Brian Nichols, uh, played by Oyelowo, uh, who was a criminal, a man who was about to be sent to prison for a long, long time for rape in Atlanta uh, back in 2005. And he escaped from prison and went on a killing spree, killing the judge who convicted him, uh, a couple of people, including uh, a cop and an FBI agent. And then he took someone hostage. He took uh, a woman called Ashley Smith hostage, and spent pretty much an entire day with her holding, her, holding her in her flat. And this is that story. And it's an interesting story as it goes. And it's kind of two movies in one. You get a very interesting two-hander between Oyelowo and uh, Kate Mara as mm -hmm. Ashley. And she is a single mother who has lost her child. Uh, she's now in the custody of her aunt because uh, she is a meth addict and she's trying desperately to get her life in the straight and narrow. Um, she attends uh, meetings and all sorts of stuff, but she has some meth still in her house and it's there constantly as a bit of a temptation to her. Um, uh, and then suddenly Brian Nichols erupts into her life, this very dark, threatening, scary, capricious presence who changes from one minute to the next. One minute he's completely passive and he's okay and he's a very intelligent guy. Next minute he takes some of her drugs and suddenly he is a bit of a monster. Um, but the film never quite goes where you think it's going to go. And that relationship is very intriguing and the best moments in the movie come from the... Uh, those little moments that, that you don't quite see coming between uh, Nichols and uh, between Ashley as well and it's very well acted uh, Yellow, I think is a phenomenal mm. actor he's so great I mean 
uh, how he didn't get Austin nominated for uh, Martin Luther King for Selma is one of the great mysteries of the last few years. He's very, very good in this. Um, you know, what you get from him in this is a sense of real physical power. He doesn't speak for the first 10 minutes. The first time we see him, this this person who has largely been a likeable screen presence up until now, um, you know, a couple of bad guy turns here and there aside. And the first thing we, we see him do is he beats up a female prison officer um, later that we learn that he puts her in a coma and uh, and he then takes a gun and kills three people and he doesn't say a word until about 10-15 minutes in uh, when he does he's very intelligent and articulate and, but you know there's a sense of real raw power and physicality here as well and Kate Mara is very impressive as well this, this, this woman trying desperately to hold on to her sanity I'm not fully aware of all the facts of the story so I don't know how whether there's a bit of movie movie magic here uh, it just so happens that he breaks into her house the day the day before she's meant to get her her daughter back you know trying to put her life in the straight and narrow all that sort of stuff but that sort of stuff kind of works that movie is good then there's a fairly humdrum cliched sub law and order episode going on around them sadly uh, with the cops led by Michael K. Williams uh, of The Wire of course Omar himself uh, trying to track them down and here the dialogue is cliched here all the events seem cliched at one point uh, Williams tips over a drinks machine in frustration because he can't get his man oh, take that drinks machine and you just go really can we just go back to the, the, the hostage and the and the hostage taker please that, that's, that's much more interesting uh, so that sort of stuff doesn't really work out but the uh, for, for the most part when Oyolobo and uh, Mara are on screen yeah it's, it's good very so very solid maybe it should literally just have been a two-hander Start yeah. with him breaking in almost, and I do kind of wonder. There. That's kind uh, of a death in the maiden. But also going through it all, and hopefully I'll be talking about this with with, with David as well. Um, you know, he uh, he said this before uh, on the podcast, and he said it in the Empire uh, feature I wrote them a couple of years ago. He's a Christian, and he's his faith is very very strong. And there's a theme of that running all the way through the movie. He's he produced a film as well, so there's a theme about redemption and about faith and how and, and spirituality and how God can save you, and. For me, that element was handled somewhat clunkily. You know, it's fine, it's very well acted, but ultimately it feels like a little bit of a disappointment to me. Uh, and that's why we gave it two stars. Okay, there's a whole bunch of other stuff out this week as well. There's a Drew Barrymore film, Miss You Already, which we gave three stars to. There's Arcade Fire, The Reflector Tapes. That's another three-star one. There's Kevin Costner in McFarland, uh, renamed from McFarland, USA, in the States. Over here is just McFarland. Uh, and that is another three-star movie. So there's a whole ton of things uh, that we, we give recommendations to for you to check out. But Film of the Week, we're probably saying 99 Homes. Correct. 99 Homes. I've got 99 Homes. And no, I don't have 99 homes. And that's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more formulated fun where we'll be joined. This is a cracky lineup. This may be the best lineup we've had in the 180 so episodes of the Empire Podcast. I will be joined by Sir Ridley Scott. <gasps> that's pretty good, right? That's pretty good. And we'll be joined. He's there to talk about The Martian, obviously. And then to talk about their movie, The Intern, we're going to have Anne Hathaway and Robert De Niro. Wow. Okay. Well, so we couldn't get any. We couldn't get any big names on the same podcast. Wow, <laughs> amazing, amazing, and um, I'm hoping that he will not be storming out of that interview because <laughs> I'd be very scared if he did. Uh, that is a bit of a bingo, and of course, uh, stick around for news of the George Miller Matt Max Potter special. We're also going to have a special coming up for uh, Joe Wright's Pan, featuring Joe Wright, Hugh Jackman, Garrett Hedlund, Rooney Mara, and Levi Miller as well. So that's 
lads at Belter. Uh, it's very, very busy in the podcast over the next few weeks, so do bear with us if we sound like we're very tired. Until then, it is goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. You know, I'm, I might just go off to Pinewood just one last time, just walk around, see what's wow. what. You have all the exotic trips, Chris. Yeah, might as well. Screw it. See you guys next week. Bye.